It is not shit. I wish it were. I'm not doing it again. I'm fucking going. No, no, no. Don't open the door. Don't cross the line. We'll be fucked. Cross the line. We'll be stuck here forever. Please, you, do, you just don't know. Here's a Japanese man Sneaking on with a duo Just an old second Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, the regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And today we're discussing the 2016 occult horror film, A Dark Song. Well, we've spent a few episodes now talking about the influence of the occult on H.P. Lovecraft, on Call of Cthulhu, and, and on horror fiction in general. And now let's drill down into a particular example of how this has been used in horror cinema. So A Dark Song is an Irish-British co-production released in 2016, set in Wales, but shot in Ireland. The first feature from British writer-director Liam Gavin, who had only made short films prior to this. Yeah, I mean, this is a very low-budget film, and he obviously did this on a very tight budget. And this is pretty much a two-hander. I mean, there's a few supporting roles, but there are two main stars. It's shot almost entirely in a single house. I mean, it's very nicely made. There's some good visual effects. I mean, there's certainly some, some fantastic cinematography and, and set design. But at the same time, I mean, you can tell that this was not an expensive film to make. On the other hand, I don't think throwing money at it would have improved it. Not at all, no. So it, didn't, it doesn't suffer from its effects. And I thought the effects towards the end was pretty good. I watched it with my daughter, who I will say, footnote, she is 21. This is not and a film for kids, no. No. <laughs> no. And she did feel the special effects were a bit second rate, but I, I didn't really get that. I thought I was pretty impressed with it. Yeah, I think the constraint of budget was actually part of the development of this film. I did see some interviews with Liam Gavin where he was talking about the fact that he didn't have much money to work with. So I think the idea was that he knew he was going to be constrained by things like sets and special effects and cast. That's why he chose this particular subject matter. That's why he made the film he did. And I think the film is all the stronger for it. So, yeah, I mean, sometimes constraints can really make a film. Now, at face value, as we've mentioned, this is predominantly a film with two people in there. They're not big names out there in the, in the world of film or TV, but they are recognisable faces if you've watched some of the films that we've talked about previously or works done by the same directors. Particularly Steve Oram, he has a bit of a track record in horror, appearing in films such as Kill List, uh, The Canal, and Ben Wheatley's black comedy Sightseers. I think he also gets a very blink-and-you-miss-it moment in Paddington. Yeah, and he's also <laughs> in The World's End as well. Ah. And the female lead, Catherine Walker, is Irish and has mostly worked in theatre and television, so not a familiar face to me. Yeah, I, again, I saw this interview with Liam Gavin where he talked about the fact that, particularly with Steve Oram, he hadn't actually auditioned him. He'd written the, the role pretty much with Steve Oram in mind. And he didn't really have a chance to sort of rehearse or get the actors together to see how well they gel and what kind of chemistry they had. And so, you know, it was something of a crapshoot in that respect. Particularly as I, I believe uh, Catherine Walker had been suggested to him by the backers or the producers of the film. Uh, he hadn't actually cast her himself. He was saying that it was such a huge relief when they, he got the two of them on set together and found that they really kind of sparked off each other while acting. Yeah, if either of those had been weak in this, it would have brought the film down because it is pretty much a two-hander, like we said, for about 95% of the film. Yeah. And you know, it's very much down to their performances. This is, oddly enough for this choice of episode... Um, a film steeped in real occult practices. 
Um, the plot revolves around the Abramelin working, or Abramelin operation if you uh, read the Mathers Treaty, which we'll discuss later in the episode. Which way does this room face? This room faces west. Let's jump into a synopsis of the film itself and, and a few interesting points about it. We open as Sophia, a woman in her 30s, inspects a large house in rural Wales, asking some strange questions. She's talking to the estate agent, the letting agent, and she wants the house for a whole year, which, you know, seems fair enough. But she gives the estate agent a wad of cash and she says, for privacy. Yeah. And she's asking lots of questions like the orientation of certain rooms. You know, does this room face west and stuff like that? And I mean, I guess these are some things that you might ask when leasing a house, but just the way she's doing it, I mean, you can tell from the outset that this isn't a normal mm. lease. Sophia goes to the train station and meets this odd fellow with a beard, which we learn to be Mr. Solomon. They go to a cafe and she watches as he eats. Sophia wants to hire him to help with a magical working. Do we know that at this stage? Well, he's she talking wants about, to hire him. Yeah, he's talking about other people that you know, she might have approached and you know, what they might be able to offer. Yeah. But you know, we're starting to get the first intimations here that this is what's going on. But this guy is very down-to-earth. He's what almost the epitome of ordinary. There's, yeah. But there's very little that would strike you as, oh, he's a, a learned magical occultist. Yeah. I, I, th- th- this is something that was really interesting to me because I saw this, you know, like I say, a number of interviews with Liam Gavin. And one of the things he talked about was the fact that he wanted to create this very sort of down to earth working class occultist uh, who was very much the polar opposite of the standard trope of the occultist that you see in a lot of occult stories, where it is this, you know, learned gentleman with great resources and stuff like that. He, he wanted some guy who had probably come off a council estate somewhere it it hadn't occurred to me until i saw that interview that that's what he was going for simply because he reminded me of so many real occultists i'd known over the years yeah it's very convincing yeah, yeah very much so that, that you know it, it is playing against type in a, a fictional world mm. in a fictional sense but it's very much not playing against type in the real world yeah back at the house solomon conducts his own inspection Sophia says that she has been purifying herself, only eating between dusk and dawn and avoiding alcohol and sex for months. Yes, including masturbation. And, yeah, it talks about how, how difficult that is for... I mean, it's 22 weeks she's been doing it at this stage. And, yeah, this is something that will come up again later. You started, then? Purifying yourself? Yes. Well, let's hear it. I've followed the diet... I've had no alcohol for 22 weeks. I've abstained from sex. All sex? Masturbation as well? All sex. <laughs> it gets tricky after a month, doesn't it? They discuss plans. Solomon says, The Abramelin, you're not fucking around. He tells her that he has done this three times before, but it has only worked once. Solomon asks Sophia why she's wanting to do this, and she says, for love, that there was someone who loved her once who doesn't love her anymore. And this does not please Solomon. He seems very unhappy with this and refuses to have anything to do with it, demands to be taken back to the train station. Uh, he says that he doesn't think that seeking love is a good enough reason to perform the ritual. That does fit in keeping with some of the, the texts that, uh, that Mathers wrote regarding this, because there's a lot of caveats and warnings about the benefits of that. Oh, and yes. then, upon having read that now and looking back at the film, that is very in keeping with this. This is not something you do for personal gain. Desperate, Sophia offers Solomon £80,000. 
When he still refuses, she admits that she really wants to see her dead child again. She reminds him that he may also ask the angel for something if the right works. This brings Solomon around. He, he agrees, but he offers warnings. This is real stuff you're playing with. Real angels, real demons. And that assuming one's holy guardian angel is a higher self is psychobabble bollocks. And yeah, this is something that really resonated with me because I, Alistair Crowley was one of the great proponents of this ritual. He performed it himself a burlesquing house uh, on the shores of Loch Ness. He used uh, initially the uh, the Golden Dawn version, the McGregor Mathers version, mm-hmm. but he developed his own sort of lighter version of it that he then incorporated into the teachings of his magical order, the, uh, the Astra Margentum. And he sort of famously told one of his followers that there aren't any angels, there aren't any demons, that when you're doing the abramelum working or you know, any kind of ritual magic, that what you're doing is contacting different parts of your personality, your higher self, or you know, the demons represent the parts of yourself that you, you might want to manifest and take control of. And yeah, your holy guardian angel is sort of, yes, this part of yourself that transcends normal humanity. And it's really interesting that in this film, Solomon directly addresses that and sort of says, now, fuck all that. This is real. This is dangerous. There are real demons. There are real angels. This is what we're dealing with. They plan to buy supplies for eight months. Once we start this, there's no leaving. He really sort of makes a point that we're going to be locked in. And yeah, eight months. So there's like loading up freezers. They're, you know, stocking up on supplies. Sophia unpacks her personal effects, including a picture of her son and one of his favourite toys, a plastic goblin. On the following day, Sophia goes out to the supermarket and buys a bunch of supplies. Uh, In the car park, she hears a child crying somewhere and she goes off looking and and sort of sees this this child in a hoodie lying on the ground. And there's something going on that we can't quite make out. And, you know, just as she's perhaps going to see what's really happening and another woman grabs her arm and you know says you know so sophia yeah and you know obviously knows her yeah it's a weird bit this whether it's just a, a foreshadowing of events to come or a shadow from her past it's kind of odd it's a little unsettling i guess for the viewer but it's more than that because in the film itself there is very much the idea that as the ritual progresses, Sophia starts seeing things. And all these visions seem to have something to do with, you know, the progression of the ritual. But here we have something that is somewhat akin to those that happens before the ritual starts. I kind of wondered, you know, as we discover, I, Sophia has had psychiatric treatment before. She's obviously you know, dealing with a hell of a lot here with the death of her child. And it sort of starts raising that question as to, you know, how much of what happens is actually objective, how much of it is the result of the ritual, and how much of it may be her hallucinating things. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And the two women go off and have some tea. Uh, The newcomer, Sophia's sister, uh, she worries that Sophia is doing something dark and asks her to come home, but Sophia refuses. It'd be a really shit film if she had said yes. <laughs> Certainly a much shorter one. Yeah. That night, Solomon and Sophia sit by a fire in the garden while Solomon whittles a piece of wood. Solomon asks Sophia if she speaks German. She answers yes and Solomon cuts his hand. He insists that she must have told a half-truth. Everything now has consequences. Solomon constantly looks for omens and signs and takes everything that happens as significant. 
very yeah. superstitious. This is a big part of magic, you know, this whole idea that uh, you're looking for correspondences and connections and omens. Certainly, I mean, people who practice ritual magic tend to have all sorts of weird experiences. An interesting question, how much of that is because they're just primed to look out for these things more. I remember I, you know, there's there's an old flatmate of mine who, you know, practiced a lot of magic, who would look for omens and absolutely everything. I mean, mm. to an almost, I think, psychotic degree. I mean, I'm, I'm using the word advisedly there. He'd go outside and he'd, you know, see certain birds in certain places or find, you know, a certain plant or whatever. And clearly this meant that, you know, something important was about to happen or, you know, it had this association, therefore this thing was about to enter his life. I think it's a primitive human nature to be superstitious and to, you know, look for connections between things. I think people just do it all the time, don't they? Mm. Solomon advises Sophia to go for a walk, as it will be months before they see the outside world again. Unless, you know, they maybe look out the window. No, uh, that's too, too much of a radical concept. She, she does so and encounters the withered, nightmarish corpse of a dog there to unsettle the the viewer i think well and, and also it sets up echoes of stuff that happens later in the film later solomon surrounds the building with a circle of salt stating once i complete this circle no one can leave until the invocation is done there is still plenty of room to walk around the house given how wide he puts that circle so he's just been a dick saying you can't go outside i guess so i didn't <laughs> really think about that you could kind of walk around inside the circle yeah, I he suppose. did he made it from yeah. the inside yeah <laughs> you can do it on the first day of the work-in, Solomon wakes Sophia by throwing a bucket of water over. She's kind of asleep on the, the bed and he just comes in and splosh. What the fuck are you doing in bed? I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I, I, I stepped in, I'm sorry. I don't give a toss! Downstairs! He's a total bastard, really, yeah. to her. Very abusive. As they work, Solomon loses his temper with Sophia for not taking things seriously enough. He gives her a slice of toadstool as a purgative. She is sick for hours afterwards. I mean, this relationship between them is quite abusive. Oh, 100%. Yeah. yeah. We've got to describe him. He's a physically big guy and she's a you know, moderate to slim build. Yeah, he dominates her. It's, I think, a, an interesting question about the fil this film as to whether, you know, the relationship is simply one of him abusing power and bullying her and the, the, whether this is a power trip for him or whether, you know, he's genuinely motivated and considers that this is the only way to get her to achieve the result she wants. But, I mean, regardless of, of how you look at it, the relationship between them from the outset is not a healthy one. Solomon consecrates the ritual space and explains its purpose. This world will be merged with other worlds. He tells her that the angel may appear at any time. Yeah, they, they progress through the working through repetitions of prayer and ritual and instruction. They're you know, messing around with magic squares. Uh, she sits in, in these circles and meditates for hours on end. At one point, he has her meditate upon a rock for two days, during which time you know, she's not allowed to leave the circle and you know, can't have any food or water or anything like that. I, one thing that really occurred to me as I was watching this, I mean, particularly you know, with the scene that's coming up as well, is how much this parallels the way that uh, cults program people or break down their egos. This whole idea of uh, sleep deprivation and starvation, uh, isolation from the outside world. Celibacy. I, yeah. yeah. The, the, the only thing that's really missing from the classic cult formula is love bombing. I mean, this is pretty much the opposite, but I yeah. mean, it's still provoking a strong emotional reaction. I, think I don't think the love bombing is, is universal. Yeah. 
What's the term mean for those who don't know? It just know means it? flooding them with praise and um, adoration. And, and, you know, equally the opposite is discipline and desire on the part of the adherent to be part of the, the cult can be very strong. And the more that's denied to them, the stronger it becomes, I think. Yeah. But, but there is this very strong idea in ritual magic of ego death. Same way as with, say, something like Buddhist practices, that you're trying to move past a lot of your your sense of who you are, your sense of uh, you know self, and transcend to something much greater than yourself. Connect with the the greater universe, and as long as you are centered in yourself, that can't happen. So you can perhaps see that a lot of what Solomon is doing here is trying to provoke ego death in Sophia. As they continue progressing through prayer, ritual instruction, etc., um, a door opens behind Sophia while she is meditating. She investigates, finds her son's toy on the floor. Outside, a dog barks. That's pretty good for a dead dog. Oh, I hadn't thought about it being that dog. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. no, I hadn't really made that connection. That's an interesting idea. Obviously, it's not that dog, but uh, the following so day... Oh, huh? well, is it? <laughs> Well, is it? It's not. (laughs) Is it the dead dog? (laughs) The following day, Solomon asked if Sophia has heard the dog. They're miles from anywhere, and the dog may be a sign of things working a grim, perhaps, from Harry Potter, but Mm. and folklore. Um, It predates Harry Potter. Well, yes. (laughs) So I said on folklore. Uh, As he speaks, a bird smashes into the kitchen window. That's how it starts. Oh, poor yes, bird. birds hitting glass windows, clear sign of occult workings. <laughs> In conversation, Solomon tells Sophia that she needs to forgive someone. She refuses. Key point this, remember that note, asking him to work around this. Yeah, and the workaround he offers is this ritual wherein he cuts himself and, and drains some of his blood into a cup. And he passes the cup over to her and tells her to drink it. And she is revolted, going on about disease and risk of infection. But, you know, she does eventually force it down. And then she has the the experience of reliving that whole thing over again. Yeah, like a deja vu. Yeah. Yeah. Later in her room, Sophia tears the picture of her and her son apart, discarding the half showing her. To her dismay, she discovers she has lost the toy. While meditating, Sophia hears something moving under the magical circle. Solomon tells her that they've been noticed and must progress carefully. Sophia mentions her recurring dream of an old woman holding her son's hand. Solomon says that he has been dreaming about owning a moped. Well, that's just <laughs> ominous right there. An occult moped from hell. <laughs> but yeah, it does play into that whole idea of how down-to-earth Yeah, uh, I thought it was pretty cool. But also it's his dreams, though, isn't it? So he's kind of reflecting on that as being strange himself, I think. But I guess at the same time, you know, a moped represents some form of mobility, perhaps, you know, the idea that they've been trapped inside this this house for so long. And now the the idea of even something as mundane as a moped represents a degree of freedom to him. I think you're maybe reading too much into it there, Scott. (laughs) I think... I think I think it's more about just bringing him down to earth. Yeah. They're contrasting this weird magical ritual they're doing with something really mundane. And it'd make a great scene with him riding off into the set to going pop, 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 <laughs> Also, pop, she's pop, just pop, giving him eight grand. He can buy a freaking oh, moped. 80, 80, grand. 80 grand, sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a lot of mopeds. He can buy like a pimped up moped for that. <laughs> After painting Sophia's body with Chinese pictograms, Solomon implies that they should have sex. She assents. 
Yeah, he never states it directly, but it's you know, sort of pretty obvious from the implication what he means. Uh, what's what's obvious? That you know, he's he's suggesting that they perform some kind of uh, sex riot or oh, yeah. you know, they have sex. I, I don't think he actually says it directly, but it's sort of you know, this immediate understanding that this is what must happen next. Solomon tells Sophia to put some makeup on and then undress and bend over in front of him. I mean, when she sort of questions the putting the makeup on, he says, I'm a bloke. Again, sort of bringing him very kind of gritty and kind of down to earth. Yeah. He then just jerks himself off and, you know, we don't see it, but, you know, he ejaculates. Pretty damn quickly, which I I guess he's been celibate for months, you know. Solomon then admits there's no sex magic in this and that he just needed to clear his mind. Okay. Um, she's furious, grabs her clothes and marches off, understandably. Yeah, but, I mean, sex is quite a big part of a lot of ritual magic, and, and masturbation is as well. This is something that perhaps comes more out of the chaos magic side of things. And, you know, Austin Osmond Spare you know, had a lot of the idea of, of sort of charging yourself magically and charging these sigils through orgasm. This then became a, a central part of chaos magic. And again, it sort of ties in very much with that ego death side, the idea being that at the moment of orgasm your ego drops away just for that moment and you're open to imprinting by magical or mystical uh, elements the petit mort yes exactly except in his case he's just having a wank i mean the whole thing that you described scott does just sound like one massive circle jerk with austin osman spare and all these people so yeah in revenge sophia adds some of her urine to a stew and serves it to solomon she does indeed give the piss rather than take, um, him taking <laughs> it. It seems fairly lacklustre revenge to me, but yeah. But, but I guess if it made her feel better. Sophia tells Solomon that she is leaving. Nothing useful is happening. I mean, she's fed up with it all. Solomon tells her that if she crosses the barrier, they'll be trapped forever. He makes it like very dramatic here. He promises that she will never see her child again. In one of the interviews that I saw with Liam Gavin, he talked very much about the idea of how his approach to making this film was to try to ratchet up the tension all the way through and never actually provide any release. And, yeah, I, I, I think it's mostly successful that. And it's something you don't tend to see in a lot of horror films because horror films are very much about this sort of build-up and release of tension through jump scares or through comedy scenes or, or through violence. And there is you know, almost none of that in this film. As alluded to, they repeat the rituals. This time, things happen. Sophia finds a flower on the hall uh, carpet. Flecks of gold leaf flutter down as she meditates. Despite this, Sophia loses confidence when the angel fails to appear. Solomon insists that she must be holding something back. He's still convinced that she hasn't been straight with him. He slams her onto the floor, demanding that she tell him the truth. Look at me. It's ridiculous. It's all shit. Look at me. Have you told me everything? Yes. You bitch! You stupid bitch! Fucking bitch! Fucking tell me! I want vengeance. And, yeah, she has been holding something back, and she admits at this stage that what she actually wants from her holy guardian angel is revenge. That her son didn't just die, he was murdered. He was was murdered by idiots doing some kind of ritual. 
Solomon is furious at her, not because of her motivation, but because of her lack of honesty and and therefore endangering the ritual. He says that, you know, revenge is a perfectly good motivation, something that he can work with and he could have worked with all along if she'd just fucking told him. Uh, That night, Solomon gets drunk and wakes Sophia up. He takes her to the bathroom and he tells her to get in the bathtub. There, he baptises her, dunking her under the water three times. Yeah, when he baptises her, he invokes names like Horus, Christ. Uh, He he invokes the names of a lot of gods and entities who have died and been reborn. He then plunges her under a third time and holds her down. Like we said, he's a, a much bigger guy. He holds her down and drowns her in the bathtub. It's pretty clear that he's then intending to bring her back. He's taken her you know, past the, the black gate and he's going to try and bring her back, which he does. He, he fishes her out of the bath and resuscitates her. Don't try this at home. That's not going to work. <laughs> yes. You get water in your lungs, I believe you're pretty fucked up. But, you know, she recovers. She's fine. So we'll it's, forgive it's, that. It's magic, Paul. It's magic. As the line in the film is, let her touch the void, which I think is a lovely, evocative, yeah. yeah. I mean, I would say he's basically turned her off and turned her on again. <laughs> like, yeah. done a hard reset. Well, he, yeah, he does actually sort of almost explain it in those terms that this. Yeah, that, that, that he's restarted the ritual, he's restarted her so that she can begin again on this ritual afresh with the correct motivation. And, you know, this will undo all the damage to the ritual that has been done by the untruths that it's been based on so far. And Sophia isn't very happy about all this, yeah, and the fact that she hasn't seen her angel so far. And she just flies at him. She grabs him, pushes him back. He falls to the ground. Uh, This is all taking place in the kitchen. As he falls, he lands on this big kitchen knife that just goes straight through his abdomen. I like the way you say she's not very happy about it. She's been sexually abused and murdered. (laughs) Yeah. It's it's the kind of thing that might make a person grumpy. Mm. And again, even with a knife sticking out of his gut, he is still looking for connections. He speculates that this is the price he has to pay. Not quite, mate. You have got a lot worse coming. As Sophia tries to patch Solomon up, Solomon asks about her son's disappearance. She tells him that Jack was abducted from daycare and his murderer never found. She asks what Solomon is going to ask the angel for. He says, a moped. (laughs) No, sorry, he says, invisibility explaining that it's not what she thinks, it's not actual invisibility, but he just wants to live away from the world. To be honest, given who he is, I wouldn't have thought it's that hard to... He's pretty much living away from the world now. Yeah, and and he is a fairly unremarkable man. He's the kind of person who, if you passed in the street, you wouldn't give him a second glance anyway. People aren't going to be knocking the door down to hang out with him, I don't think. It's also, I think we mentioned in the previous episode, it's also, in terms of the grand scheme of things you can ask for from angels and demons, that's kind of one of the most vanilla powers you can get. But is he being honest? Well, the following day, things start getting weird. Sophia hears a child crying somewhere in the house and goes off looking for it. She hears other strange sounds, sounds of movement around. She glimpses a dark shape skulking down the end of a corridor. At one point, she passes what looks like a cut in the wallpaper that's bleeding. Solomon asks Sophia what her vengeance will look like. She wants her son's killers to be damned. Solomon says they already are. Sophia could ask for so much more. Solomon's wounds, predictably, become infected. I mean, he's been stabbed in the gut, so... You would have thought in all that supplies they would have picked up some decent medical supplies. Yeah, but but to deal with sepsis and... Yeah, I mean, if it's gone through his intestines, yeah. To make things worse, 
the power goes off. Despite this, the two persist, but Solomon seems increasingly unsure about what he is doing. And again, this ties in very much with a lot of you know, magical workings. Uh, the, the idea that, I mean, perhaps we'll see a bit more of this later, but this idea of um, the long dark night of the soul passing through Chapel Perilous. This, I mean, it can be seen in all sorts of different ways, but it is that sort of moment of catastrophe when things start falling apart. It can also represent the point at which the, the ego dies and you have to deal with the fallout from that. But in this case, I, I think, you know, if we're looking at it in, in tr sort of traditional magical terms, this is perhaps the point at which they, they come up to the edge of the abyss or start crossing the abyss. That night, Sophia hears Jack outside her bedroom door. She searches for him by candlelight. He is distressed, unsure of where he is. Speaking from inside a locked room, he says, I've got to keep quiet. There's a dog. He asks her to open the door, but she refuses, saying it's not him we hear the dog attack him. Classic not talking to the demons and the demons mm. being deceptive, you know, that we've seen in so many other films, but it evokes it well. Solomon's condition worsens, but he insists on continuing. Sophia visits Solomon, who is lying in bed, babbling. She asks if God is here now. He cannot answer, and in the morning light, he is pale and dead. Reeling in shock, Sophia tries to continue the work in. She finds that all Solomon's magical journals have been scored out. He's just like scribbled over well, all the text so that... Was it him? Well, was it him? Was it her? Yes. Yeah, or was it something else? Again, you know, going to yeah. this idea of crossing the abyss, I mean, this is, you know, one catastrophe after another, all these obstacles being placed in front of her, including she's now lost her guide. She's now lost the, the notes he's left behind. So she is now completely adrift. So what does she do? She gets the fuck out of there. So she goes to the front doorstep, looks at the line of salt, steps over it, gets in her car, but the battery's dead. So she heads off on foot, walking for miles. Finally, she spies a house through the trees. She approaches, going through the trees, obviously looking for help or some way out of this, and realises as she gets there that it's the house that she left a while back, that it's the house she rented, and there's really no escape. It's these crazy Welsh roads going round in circles. <laughs> this obviously. may have some deeper meaning, but this would probably be what would happen to me in real life because I get lost <laughs> real easy and would just end up thinking it's a different house. Oh, no, I've just approached it from the other side. <laughs> But she seems much more resigned and heads back inside. I mean, do, but maybe it's an academic point within the film, but do, do we think that she ever actually left the house at this stage? Is this, again, another delusion? Or did the world really change outside? doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter. I took it that, she, yeah, she did. Mm -hmm. Likewise, I got it that just her perception had been warped so that she was guided back towards the house. But yeah, it's a good old horror trope that works. Yeah. yeah. The house is even more squalid now. Maybe, you know, we're seeing it in the cold light of day. Footsteps echo all around. We never really know how much time is passing either. She sees shitty handprints on the wall and vomit on the now uncarpeted floor. Solomon's body has been dragged into the corridor. Yeah, and, and in the vomit, she finds the picture of her son there as well. I kind of interpreted it as that when she'd stepped over that line that she'd broken a circle and let something in, and that while she had been out of the house... 
things had come in and started to play around with the inside more so than you'd seen previously. They'd only been able to have small effects or play with perception a little bit here and there. But now it's full on, hey, we're inside, we're going to mess it all up. Mm, except there's also the idea in the Abramelum working that as well as trying to contact your holy guardian angel, you are summoning up demons, you're oh, gaining yeah. control over them. And I think this is the point at which the working has progressed to the stage where she has you know, summoned up these demons but she she's done so at a stage where she doesn't have control over them. Mm. And so this is where it is at its most dangerous. Yeah, she's done it by completely unintentional means. Yeah. Sophia watches over Solomon's body from the staircase. Suddenly, pale hands come out the gloom and drag him away. Following, she strikes a match, revealing monstrous, ghoulish shapes watching her. Hands grab at her as she flees, and she barricades herself in the room upstairs. The doorknob rattles. Jack's voice asks her to let him in. She refuses, apologising for failing him and saying she loves him. Are you asking me to forgive you, he asks. No, I'm going to get your killers. They're not my killers. I'm just some cunt using your son's voice to make you afraid. I know. The following morning, Sophia finds Jack's toy outside her room. This has been missing for a while, and we've kind of got the idea that she's looking for it, this little toy plastic goblin. Yeah, I mean, she'd seen it briefly at some point earlier where she'd been doing some laundry and it was sitting on top of the washing machine and fell down behind. And when she went looking for it, it had gone again. So it just seems, yeah, it seems to just crop up and disappear all the way through this. The old woman from her dreams appears, leading her son Jack. A demon appears and strikes Sophia down. Blooded and semi-conscious, Sophia is dragged through the darkness. Demonic forms leering over her. The dog appears and growls at her. This is where things start getting really quite frightening. And I was really impressed at the way the demons were presented in this because I mean, they're not created through prosthetics or CGI or anything like that. They are basically just people in makeup, but they're, the makeup they use, it's all sort of grey and squatted looking. Mm. They're, they're leering in odd ways. I mean, like they're covered chosen. in ashes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's something quite corpse-like about them, or like bodies that have been pulled out of quicklime. And it's a very simple and very creepy effect that's amplified by the fact that it's all shot in semi-darkness. The demons hold Sophia down as one of their number approaches, dragging huge bolt cutters. It cuts off one of Sophia's fingers. Yeah, and for the next few scenes, I mean, she's there holding her hands up, uh, blood splattering down all over herself. But her guarding her, her wounded hand means that for the next few scenes, she, her hands are basically gripped in a, a position of prayer. Sophia breaks loose and flees, demons chasing her. She tries to escape up a dark flight of stairs, but the demons hold her in place. Looking up, she repeats, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry, like blossoms at the top of the stairs, and the demons recoil. Dun-dun-dun. So Sophia heads up the stairs, and she comes to a set of doors there. They're, they're slightly ajar, and white light is bleeding through and surrounding them. She enters, and she finds this, this huge, glowing, androgynous shape, dressed in armour, kneeling in the circle where Solomon had once told her that the angel would appear. It is a beautiful and terrible figure, and it's clutching a sword. Yeah, I mean, when we say large, in the room, it's crouched down, kind of on one knee, I think, and it pretty much fills the room. Mm. So this angel if it stood up would be what like 30, 30 feet, foot tall yeah, I'd yeah. Say. yeah i mean and that that scale is 
really impressive that was like wow that's really cool and this this like white light and the, the kind of armor and it's got this helmet on so it's obscuring its face partially um i thought that was a really cool effect yeah i mean everything we've seen in terms of effects up to now have been you know makeup and lighting and stuff like that but here i mean this is something that feels you know transcendent and where most of the special effects budget went <laughs> yes Although, speaking of special effects, the, the thing I really liked about it is when it starts to talk. Yeah. That as it speaks to Sophia, we only hear a rumble as its lips move. I thought that was fantastic. That there was no, oh, it's just a person in a suit of armour mm. talking. No, no, this gave it some kind of really otherworldly quality. Oh, yeah. I mean, the whole room shakes around. I mean, the, the objects on tables, knickknacks and so on just start rattling around and falling off just from the, the sheer vibration and power of the angel's voice. Yeah, it's like you're just picking up the, the most bass tones on a subwoofer. You just get whoa, whoa, sort of noise. Yeah, really effective. I thought really cool. Her hands clutched together. Sophia tells the angel that she is sorry. She asks for the power to forgive. Intercut with this, we see Sophia sinking Solomon's body in the pond outside, and the angel smiles. The working is complete. Sophia goes back out to her car. It starts this time, and she drives away. Another car passes her on the road, and she begins to cry with the relief. Yeah, I thought that was a fantastic ending. This is, you know, a really interesting aspect of the film to me that I started out with misgivings about the way that they'd used the Abramelum working in that it is not fundamentally about, as it's, you know, projected in this film initially, summoning up your holy guardian angel and making a wish. You know, what she gets instead is transformation. She gets the power to forgive. She transcends all the, you know, the shit that has been destroying her life and, and gets to move past that. And that, to me, is much more what ritual magic is actually about. And I really like the fact that they sort of turned that around, started out with almost perhaps common misconceptions about what magic was, and, and moves, moves on to, you know, what, you know, at least I think for a lot of practitioners, it actually is. It'd also be, thinking back to the moment that when she was asked by her sister, yeah, don't do this, if she would turn around and said, yeah, okay, let's go away. If they stuck to things like the Golden Dawn version of the uh, the right, that'd be a really bloody boring film. Uh, yes. Watch them get up at sunrise, more prayer. Have a sundown, more prayer again. Oh, a few months later, we're going to do it at midday, more prayer. What we're doing in between? Yeah, we're just going to sit and read some books and do some do some religious introspection. It's really not photogenic for the for the vast majority of it. So where does this Abramelin working come from, Max? You did a bit of research yeah. on this, right? Oh, yes. Do you take the history with a pinch of salt or not? I, I take yeah. it with a very large amount of salt. <laughs> a um, whole circle of salt. <laughs> indeed. <laughs> well, if you believe what Mathers wrote in the introduction to the, um, the book and then the subsequent material inside it, the Book of the Sacred Magic of Abramelin the Mage was written in the 15th century by 
Abraham of Worms. Uh, Worms. Worms. I never know how you pronounce that because it's it's spelt with a W. It yeah. looks like Worms. Well, it's, it, <laughs> it, it, famously, I the the Holy Roman Empire held their assemblies uh, in Worms, and it was known as the the Diet of Worms, mm-hmm. uh, which you know in English looks like a diet of worms, mm-hmm. which you know, is, has been a source of amusement, I think, to history students for a long time, mm-hmm. and long may it well be. The focus of the first part of the book is essentially Abraham laying out a letter to his son, Lamech, saying, this is your inheritance, this is the tale of my journey going to look for magical enlightenment, and this is the knowledge that's been passed down by the ages, mainly through the Jewish community, because there's a fair bit that ties in with the likes of Kabbalah oh, yeah. and, and such, and a lot the, of the timings revolve around Jewish festivals. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting the way that they tie that in in the, the film as well, because at some point Solomon does mention that the Kabbalah is, for him, you know, a, a sort of grammar for expressing the Abraman and working, mm. But it's not actually the point of it. He sees it as being fundamentally Gnostic. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's, there's certain aspects aspects of both, especially when you get to the later sections where you're summoning up demons and so on, and they have sigils and all, all the rest of it. The first part of the book that explains about how Abraham discovered Abramelim out in the desert, how he learnt from him and then brought all this information back to Europe and ultimately wrote it down in this, this manuscript, put it in a box and gave it to his son. The whole point of the working as he's describing it in a very long, very King Jamesian style text is to say that you summon up your holy guardian angel so that you can learn from it, you can discourse with it, so that you can summon and bind demons so they can no longer be a negative influence in your life yeah. and potentially the lives of others. Well, it's not just that. I mean, it's described as gaining the knowledge and conversation of your holy mm-hmm. guardian angel. And the knowledge so, in that, in that yeah. context being how to summon and bind some demons. But, but I think it's more than that. It's you know, the idea that there is this transcendent power that watches over you and you are making direct contact with mm. it. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's that you once you've made contact, you have that contact for the rest of your life. Yeah, you are touching the divine. Hmm. And But key, until you do something that would irk it, something that you would do for a selfish manner, at which point that contact's broken. Yeah. Because it does very strictly say that the powers you are gaining from this ritual should only be used for good and not for self-good. You are doing this to help others around you. That should be the sole purpose of it. It's got a long list of benefits. From summoning up each of these demons, you can potentially learn other things from them once you've eliminated them as a negative force. It's a whole list. Um, some of the key ones, premonition, transmogrification, flight, invisibility. Hey, Solomon, you nearly got your wish. <laughs> Conjuration, etc. There's a whole raft of them. So it's, it's contact guardian angel in Call of Cthulhu hmm. terms. I don't know quite what you'd be contacting. Yeah. But in a game, I don't think I would make the spell take six, eight, nine months to cast because oh. it's like... That's actually pretty cool, but I wouldn't normally occur to me. There's variations beyond the different uh, versions of the working that's been published. The Mathers one said that it would take six lunar cycles, of which you split it into three two-moon phases. So in the first two moons you do this, in the second two moons you do that, in the third uh, two moons you do this. Normally it's just building upon the following practices, that you either sit down and read and do more inspection of religious texts in this moon, you up your prayer to do it at midday in the next one, and so on and so forth. By the time you get to the end of the third um, moon, then it changes. Not completely, but it, it gets a bit weirder. It's like rubbing ash in your hair, prostrating yourself in the um, in front of your altar and debasing yourself in front of God to say how I am not worthy, etc., until the angel appears. Which but again I, sort of ties in with the whole idea of ego death. Mm, yeah, it's very much you're giving up yourself and at that point surrendering to the mercy of God. But I can see making that an actual challenge in Call of Cthulhu. You know, you, you maybe divide it into three phases, like you just said, Matt. You're going through 
extreme physical uh, challenges yeah. uh, and deprivation, which can have that sanity-threatening effect. So, so you could become open to the delusions, and you're having to push roles to to carry on and to keep going, and it you know it almost becomes like a. I guess a three-step process would be kind of cool. Well, I'd, get, I'd, argue, I'd argue four steps. Um, potentially even five. I'm just thinking from a game yeah. mechanic point of yeah. view. Yeah, yeah, you want to make yeah. it cool, but you don't want to drag it out too no, long. Uh, so it's sort of beginning, middle, end. Reflecting one classic bit of Cthulhu then, having sat down and doing your English role to read the book, mm-hmm. um, actually set it, getting the setting right for this is very important as well. And the description of the, the, basically the notes you have to follow to set up the ritual space... They're bloody complicated. Oh, yeah. It really take a lot of reading, rereading, going over again, plotting it out on paper to try and work out what orientation is supposed to be where. Well, I, think it's, I think it's significant that Solomon in the film is working very much from his own notes that he's created. Uh, he's, he's not working from grimoires. Mm. He's got all these notebooks that he's filled up uh, from, you know, obviously, decades of practice and having done the ritual many times before and reading from lots of different sources. He's not just picked up the Mathers translation or Crowley's bastardised version this is something he has honed and personalised. And I think that illustrates, you know, why a tome can take weeks to read. Yes, you can read it, but then you've got to reread it. You've got to study it. You've got to do analysis of it. You've got to get other texts and do comparative study. So it can take a long time. It's not as simple as just reading it. And also, you know, going back to what you were saying about the sanity aspect as well, the Abramelin working is actually notorious for driving occultists mad. Part of the mythology of it is that Crowley, when he performed it, he you know, he bought this, you know, as I said, this house on the edge of Loch Ness and you know, sequestered himself from the world for months while doing it. And supposedly that, that's when his life started going to shit. For years afterwards, I mean, his reputation was tarnished. He was a drug addict and the Golden Dawn fell apart around him. And the mythology is that a lot of that was because he basically fucked up the Abramelum working. Part of the mythology as well is that because he'd never quite completed it, that he sort of left this taint upon Boleskine House, where the demons that he summoned, he just never controlled or bound, and supposedly that it is still effectively haunted by them to this day, and the house is abandoned in ruins now. Thinking of the reading and rereading the text and doing comparative analysis, that's essentially what I'd done with two different versions of this. It took me a week pretty much solidly doing this when I had a week off work to, to, to plough through it. And there are, I say, lots of very densely worded, very complicated texts that you'd have to go through to look at how the setting is supposed to be imposed, whether you put it in a rural area, whether you put it in a town, and even then the orientations of the rooms, it doesn't deliberately start with, right, room A is this, then room B is this. Mm. It's all muddled together and all about comparisons between the two that then you slowly start building this picture up as to what the hell they're talking about. But yeah, it's not straightforward. Well, and also the fact that, you know, there are these different versions of it, so people have got different ideas about, you know, what these locations are. So I don't know if it's from the Crowley version, but I know a friend of mine years ago did actually perform the Abramelin working. I don't think he was ever quite the same afterwards either. Certainly for him, you know, a big part of it was that it had to be by a body of water. And that's, you know, not in the original text. Yeah, and it's not in Mathers. It's not in um, a later version that I read as well that was published a few years ago by Ibis Press that claimed a few major differences when it examined, in inverted commas, the original German text or earlier German texts where it converted six months up to 18 months, saying it was actually three cycles of six months each, and that they, it made the wording less King James and it made it a bit more penetrable. But yeah, well, bodies of water are never mentioned anywhere in it. I mean, this stuff's going to be a magnet for people who are not mentally stable. Yeah. 
no surprise that there's a lot of inconsistencies. Well, and particularly the fact that it does require seclusion from the world. You know, you're spending a long uh, period of time alone doing rituals. Shut away in a house, not going out. That's Hence right. Hence my previous comment. Mm, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, it's, it's easy to see perhaps why it does have detrimental effects on people's mental health. I'm also intrigued by, you know, from a Call of Cthulhu aspect of it, you know, this whole idea that there are so many different versions of it and which one is the right version, which one is going to fuck you up for life. Can you trust what any particular source says? I think, you know, all too often in Call of Cthulhu we look at you know, spells and rituals there is purely mechanical things. Mm. And it's sort of, yeah, all right, you, you cast a spell, you might you make the right rolls, you know, you sacrifice the, the right number of magic points or power, uh, you lose a bit of sand, stuff happens. And with this, you know, it is this much murkier thing. I mean, not just slower, not just more involved, but this whole feeling of, you know, never perhaps knowing whether you're doing the right thing. Mm. I think all too often magic in games is is a utility isn't it whereas this story of a dark song is very much about the working of this ritual and the effect it has on the people so it's that magic spell is is central to the the story whereas you know in in most of our games it's not central it's an added on thing so i stick a tome in a scenario and i'm like oh i should stick a couple of spells in that i'll just have a look through the book which one should i put in you know it's often the the uh, steps that i might go through But I think it would be cool to create a scenario inspired by this or or maybe in a campaign, a longer campaign where they they come across some big spell. And, you know, this would be good inspiration for how you might use that in a game, I think. How how would you structure something like that? Would you borrow a similar structure where you have a game session or perhaps multiple game sessions where... I mean, it's not just a question of, you know, making lots of roles, but where you are sort of role-playing through certain challenges, certain problems that come up, dealing with weird things in general that are coming up. Yeah, I think that that three-act thing would be good as kind of beginning, middle, end. Think of some challenges and types of things that you might put at each stage that would challenge the players. And, you know, and maybe at each stage they're not going to make it and get through. So they've got to proceed from one stage to the next and not fuck it up and not be freaked out so much they're forced to leave. You know, by failing sanity rolls, they might be forced to leave. And then by using delusions, you could layer on some of the stuff that we see in this film. I think there's something interesting there with what the consequences for failures are. So that, you know, we do have this death and rebirth, for example, as the reboot partway through in order to deal with, you know, failures, self-inflicted failures. We've got, you know, the, the price that Solomon ends up paying, you know, his life for the fact that perhaps he didn't approach this with pure motivations or he just didn't know what the fuck he was doing. These are, I think, much more interesting things than just simply you roll the dice and it doesn't work. Looking online, there's a few theories that maybe she killed her son or she was responsible for his death. Well, at some point as well, there's you know a question. Uh, Solomon asks her whether she thinks he did it or he was involved. That almost seemed like for the viewer because that occurred to me. It almost seemed like that was just something to dismiss that. Mm, maybe. It kind of occurred to me, but... It didn't seem to make that much sense. Yeah, it's not something that really cropped up to mind with me. It was always, this is something that happened to her or happened to her son that she wasn't directly involved with. Mm. She might blame herself 
too many films have done this where it's oh I just turned my back for a few seconds while he was in the playground and then he was gone that it's something that she thinks maybe if she'd done X then why wouldn't have happened oh god yeah but no she was yeah. she didn't have a direct hand in it that's no but she's going to have that guilt I think that kind of survivor's guilt that her child died and every way you look at that is going to be if I'd done this if I'd done that if I'd have been there if I'd have turned up earlier collect him or whatever we take it that the forgiveness isn't about her forgiving his killers it's about forgiving herself is kind of how i'm reading yeah. it, right i mean yeah i mean i i I'd, I'd say it's both that as long as she's carrying around that hate that desire for vengeance in her heart she's never going to be whole again mm. and the important thing is just forgiveness in general it is jettisoning that core of poison in her soul in Call of Cthulhu terms, I mean, if we think about what she's doing here, this, you know, gaining the knowledge of a holy guardian angel, what do you think that might actually be in Call of Cthulhu? Shit, loads of spells! <laughs> but but I, I'm, I'm also thinking in terms of what the holy guardian angel might be. I mean, obviously, the, you know, the easy answer is, oh, you know, she's contacting Nyarlathotep or something like that. Or it could be a servitor of the outer gods, because if you think of an- in parallels of angels being servants of a higher power, that the servitors are servants of the higher outer gods. I think if you wanted to make it a standard mythos entity from the books, then there's multiple ones you could do that would put a different twist on it. But equally, I think having it as some, in inverted commas, guardian angel, some higher power that's undefined would be pretty cool. I think that that would be fine. You know, the we never quite know what it was, but it was something that she contacted from the outside. Yeah, I think that works just fine. I don't think it has to fit into the Christian ethos yeah. um, of being a you know a kind of a Gnostic figure from some sort of hierarchy of angels and you know, coming down from God. You know what would be a good thing I think we could use, and we haven't seen used in a scenario yet as far as I'm aware? Someone up one of those archetypes in the Seven Gearses. Mm. Because, again, they are somewhat a humanoid, spiritual, ethereal figure. Okay. Just in terms of how this might work as a scenario, leaving aside the whole fact that it's going on for you know, months or whatever, how would you handle the fact that this requires a very proactive approach from the players? Because, I mean, most Call of Cthulhu scenarios are reactive things. You know, it's sort of, here's a problem, here's a mystery, whatever, investigate, dig into this. But here, sure, the, the protagonists are reacting to various things that are happening, but they are actively driving things forward. They are actively performing this ritual. They're, they're seeking things out. And this strikes me as being something that is antithetical to a lot of the ways that people approach Call of Cthulhu. I don't really see that. I mean, if, I mean, there's got to be a goal they want to achieve. And if there's mm. a goal they want to achieve, that's no different to any scenario. There's a goal they want to achieve. This is the means by which they're going to try and achieve it. Yeah, I think, I think you're looking at it from just the perspective of just doing the ritual. That involves a proactive approach. But it would be within a wider context. Like, plus there's got to be a reason for them to do it. They want something at the end of it. If you were doing a scenario that was purely just, right, you've gathered together to do this ritual, that would be a very different type of scenario to a lot of Cthulhu adventures. I completely mm. agree. Because mm. that is from the outset, you're doing this. But, say, if it was taken as something bigger, then I think it would be something that you'd probably... It would be an expanded thing that you would normally see take a lot less time in a regular scenario. Yeah, I don't expect the motivation for a Call of Cthulhu game to be that somebody wants the power of forgiveness. That seems yeah. pretty cool, but you'd have to be pretty invested in, in the game to want to get that. But, you know, it might be to open a magical gate. It might be to time travel. It might be to... Get a moped. Get a magic moped. <laughs> funky moped. Well, I mean, you talk about, though, forgiveness and so on, but this could be the kind of thing that a character might do 
in order to rewrite backstory elements. So we've got all these negative things that can happen to your backstories when you have major wounds and bouts of madness or indefinite insanities. But, I mean, this could be almost like a way of reversing or changing some of those negative outcomes Mm. that you've undergone. I like that. That's the kind of scenario I'd like to write. Thank you. Thank you. Well, it is that time once again when we would like to say thank you. Not necessarily to our holy guardian angel, but to our backers. Well, and and to everyone who listens to the podcast and supports us. But at this point, particularly those of you who back us via Patreon. And we have one person who's praises we would like to sing this time Uh uh-oh we'll try not to spend six months doing this i was gonna say hopefully uh it won't hurt saying thank you to our holy guardian angel but i really hope you don't or he or she or it doesn't take offense to what we're about to do yeah we have a big thanks going out to adrian knight thank you very much adrian yes thank you thank you very much adrian and 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 all praise indeed adrian thank you very much and uh, and uh, and uh, and, uh, and, uh brace yourself Who's there? Please let me in, Adrian. Please let me in. Is that you, Adrian? It's not you, is it? Go away! Go away! We are your holy guardian angel, Adrian Knight, and we have come to bless you and thank you. Meanwhile, on social media, we've had a terrific review on Apple Podcasts from The Great Stone Face, one word, across the pond in the USA. I've been thoroughly enjoying picking and choosing episodes of the podcast to listen to. I always know that the three hosts will have put in an enormous amount of research into whatever topic they choose to discuss. The hosts have a wealth of experience, having played and created RPG scenarios for decades. A gem of a podcast. By God, when you say a lot of research that for this episode, that was really true. <laughs> oh, gosh, yeah. Well, I, th- I think for most of about the last dozen episodes. Yeah. Uh, but yes, thank you very much for that. I mean, we really appreciate that. And we've had some great feedback on our recent episode about making Call of Cthulhu scary. Or scarier. Shane McLean on Facebook says, I'm not sure it will ever be truly scary. Nor should it be sometimes. Perhaps another way to look at it is this. Is it horrific? Not pushing players' buttons or deliberately using edgy themes just to shock. That is a risky and often inconsiderate move. I mean, more of laying open the horrific implications of the vast and uncaring mythos intruding into the world. That existential dread on behalf of your character truly scaring players can be tricky and very inconsistent. Giving the creeping, horrified dread is my normal target. Yeah, I think that's certainly a much more realistic expectation. I think there are times at which you will get those moments of genuine fright, but I don't think it's generally something you can force. It it tends to be, you know, as, as we discussed on the episode, a much more organic thing when it happens. And over on Reddit, Star Monkey says... How about system mechanics helping or hindering with making games scary? While GMing a Delta Green session recently, during the end of the scenario, I felt that the rapid sequence of sand checks detracted from the mood. Something else I find interesting, Lamentations of the Flame Princess eschews any kind of fear or sanity mechanic other than loyalty or morale checks. 
their adventures are creepy and scary to me. Which leads me to the question, what would Call of Cthulhu scenarios be like if we did away with sand checks? Yeah, I don't think the sand checks instill fear. I think they allow a descent into madness that allows more scope for bad things happening to Mm. that character and more fearful things happening to that character. Yeah, I think, you know, with the example of Lamentations of the Flame Princess there, I think it's because so many of the published scenarios are written to emphasise the powerlessness and fragility of the player characters. Perhaps in a way that very few Call of Cthulhu scenarios are, because Call of Cthulhu characters are more involved to create, and we we don't necessarily want to chew them up too quickly. But I think in, in Lamentations because they're fairly quick and easy things to put together, there is this this sense that they are perhaps, you know, cannon fodder. And Transhuman on Discord says, The times I did feel genuine fear in games has always been anticipatory. The knowledge or certainty of something awful coming, or on the other side of the door, and the reluctance to keep approaching it. Yeah, I mean, this is something we've touched on, I think, in some of the Lovecraft story episodes. I mean, when we talked about, say, Pickman's model and The Outsider, uh, we mentioned the fact that, you know, we could see the endings coming. We knew what kind of revelations we were building up. But at the same time, it actually enhanced the sense of dread because, you know, there was an anticipation that something horrible was coming. We could see the outlines of it. We could see it forming. And that, that's something perhaps, you know, we could do more of in games there is perhaps much more of a reliance on that sudden revelation and less on you know the slow drip feeding of information that builds the inevitable it seems to me that fear is all about anticipation Mm. certainly dread is i mean this is perhaps something we didn't go into enough in the episode which is defining you know the different types of fear we we looked at the different causes but say the difference between dread and terror and horror and disgust these are all things that we sort of lump together with being scared but they're all very different things have you seen much <laughs> i've seen things i've seen gods demons i like gods rain silver on me the dead and the damned. Most of us are damned, you know. Have you seen anything that scared you? It all scares me. And to wrap up, what are our final thoughts about A Dark Song? I like it. It's a really good film. It is. Yeah, Yeah. I liked it too. Well, I think when I talked to you guys about it initially, because you two had seen it and I hadn't, I was like, well, uh, is it an exemplar of an occult horror movie? And you were like, well, it's definitely a cult. And I was like, well, it's horror too, right? And there was some uncertainty. And when I looked it up online, there was, I think it wasn't necessarily slotted into the horror genre by all reviewers. And I really don't get that. I mean, you've got demons, you've got magical rites, you've got some pretty horrific knives going into people. You've got like a demon cutting somebody's finger off with a bolt cut. As you said, the demons were like scary and frightening. Scott, how can this be anything other than a horror film? I, and certainly, yeah, I mean, the, the, the writer and director, Liam Gavin, would agree with you. In, in an interview, he talked about how he saw it very much as being a horror film. My reservation about it wasn't perhaps to do with whether or not it was scary or, or whether there was nightmarish imagery in it. It was much more to do with the fact that it's fundamentally a very different kind of story than any traditional occult horror. Because in the Dennis Wheatley mould or any kind of classic 
story about black magic and and satanism and demons and stuff like that the occult is always something to be feared it is something dangerous it is a weapon that is wielded against people it is a corrupting influence and what's different in a dark song is the fact that albeit there's the fallout there's solomon's death there's the horrific visions and experiences that sophia undergoes but it is fundamentally a positive tool a positive transformation these are the things that they have to go through in order to be redeemed and it it is a redemption story that to me is a very perhaps subtle but important difference between that and and traditional occult horror I think it works better than a lot of the tradition um, in that inverted comma description, traditional occult horror, that it is something different. It feels more real. It feels less contrived, less, you know, less insubstantial. It yeah, definitely takes on a whole like, niche for itself, which is what I, I really like about it. I think it's cool because it is very much about those two human characters. That makes it a much more affecting story i think yeah it's it's a a very human story it's a journey by the way one thing i I meant to mention earlier was the names of the characters Mm. so i mean obviously solomon uh, solomon the king lots of connotations there well yeah i mean king solomon who had such power over demons that he summoned them up and used them to build his temple that he was sort of the archetypal master magician and demonologist and sophia from the ancient greek for wisdom this is fundamentally a journey for her to find wisdom, to attain wisdom. And so, yeah, the names are absolutely on the nose. Mm. Okay, well, we're going to go downstairs now and lock ourselves in the house for six months. Uh, but until next time, it's a good night from me. Cheerio from me. And farewell from me. Hello? Blasphemous tomes. Um. You've been looking shit up on the internet.